Hello, listening people. Hello. You're listening to Spit and Posh Presents Pictures Powwow. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Swinski. And I'm Bartek. Uh, we are spitting Polish likingly because we're always spitting, and I think we're both Polish. Am I right, Bartek? You are right, and I am relieved to hear that, too. Do you have a fun Polish fact for us this episode? Um... Poland, two syllables. Polish flag, two colours. Oh. Mm, mm, Can you okay, believe it? Interesting. Can you believe it? That, that's a f- those are facts. Yeah. It's, Even it's though fun little trivia. Is, um, what was Poland and Polish again? Pardon? A oh, Poland and Polish? It's Polska. So, yeah, still... Still two syllables. Still, it still lines up. I was, that, you knew what I was going with. I was questioning. Oh, is it still two syllables in Polish? I don't know. Mm. Okay, fun. That was a fun fact. I feel invigorated. I feel Polish even more so. I think they need to bump our number up on the top ten Polish podcasts uh, to number one. Yeah. Well, what were we at? Like halfway through or something? I think we were like Seven? four. Four. Oh, okay. that's nice. Can't remember. Let's say we're number three, just for good measure, so we get a bronze. Hmm. So, we are here doing Pictures Powwow, our show in which we talk about a movie that has come recommended. This week, it was a listening people's recommendation. Uh, my wife's friend, Brené, who has been a guest on this podcast for uh, the Brady Bunch episode of uh, Unappreciated Masterpieces, mm-hmm. uh, she recommended this film, Exit to, Exit to Eden, from 1994. Yep. If I'm not mistaken, starring Rosie O'Donnell, um, Dan Aykroyd, uh, the guy from Big Fat Liar, is a, who was a security guard that joined them. There were several people in mm-hmm. this movie, but most importantly, directed by not Jewish director Gary Marshall. Yep, Larry Marshall himself. Surprisingly not Jewish director Gary Marshall, who you may remember in Zathura. He was the conspiracy theorist guy, Bartek. Do you remember him in Zathura? Was there a conspiracy theorist? Oh, no, no. Race to which mountain? Sorry. I oh, yes. Yes, you're right. I remember him. And of course, keeping up with the Steins, in yeah. which he played a... Surprisingly, he went out of his wheelhouse and played a Jewish character in that, even though he's surprisingly not Jewish. Yes, well, his son directed and he thought, oh, people think my dad's Jewish. For some reason, people think my father's Jewish is <laughs> something he said. And I'm like, wait, what? I thought he was. <laughs> mm. We didn't he... mention it in our episode on Keeping Up With The Steins, but there is a point in that film where he sucks on some toes, which is pretty kinky. So it's surprising that he did exit to Eden. Well, we'll talk about that. Uh, for the listening people, obviously, we are going to start talking about Exit to Eden. If you have not seen the film, we are going to be talking spoilers on it. So you have been warned. You've had, you know, numerous years to have seen this movie, absorb it, really embrace it. So it's your fault if you get spoiled at this point, okay? Yes, now entering Exit to Eden. <laughs> What is your history and relationship with this film, Bartek? I did not know a single thing about it, and more so than usual throughout this past week, I've thought so little about the film, didn't know anything about it, I, I kept forgetting the title, I think I had to look it up in the end in our description for the Last Jedi episode, 
Mm. Um, and it was only pretty much right as I was starting to watch the film that I actually saw a synopsis and who was in it. Mm. Um, for some reason, I was thinking that, you know, it's probably going to be like a, I don't know, English drama or something like that. So when I saw that it has, you know, Rosie O'Donnell and Dan Aykroyd and directed by Gary Marshall, I thought, oh, okay, maybe, maybe it's not uh, what I was assuming it was going to be. I did mention some of those factors at the end of our last episode. I mentioned Dan Aykroyd and Gary Marshall, so... Yeah, I completely... Again, I completely forgot even the title of the film for a while. So, you knew nothing of it? Really nothing. It was only during watching the film and them explaining, like... There's a point earlier on where they're like, oh, this is going to be the premise of the rest of the story. We're going to be on this kind of island, and yeah. It was only then that I understood what the film was. I had not heard of this film either. Brene recommended it. She just messaged me out of the blue, saying, you need to do this film. It's got Dan Aykroyd. And I, when, when I heard Dan Aykroyd, and it was a film I hadn't seen uh, or heard of, I was sold. I love Dan Aykroyd, ironically and unironically. He is a crazy man who's insane and comedically talented and wonderful, and I love him. So... And we love him. We've we've enjoyed Dan Aykroyd on the show, mm-hmm. especially Nothing But Trouble, in especially which he, Nothing But Trouble, in which he could not hold down multi. He couldn't just he couldn't just stop at one role. <laughs> he had to do two, and direct and write. So oh boy, and I I love Blues Brothers. I love Ghostbusters. I like Spies Like Us. I love Dan Aykroyd. So I wanted to see this movie and. I've seen it now. Yeah, the trailer says that he's the main character. Well, yeah, and IMDb makes it feel like he's the main character too because he's the big name Mm -hmm. and he's on the poster. Even though the poster does kind of hint that maybe he's a secondary character, he's on the side, you know, he's not like prominent. Like, he's not like he's in the center, he's on the side of the poster. Well, if you remember, Ryan, in the uh, Keeping Up with the Steins poster, even the people that were important in that were very small in the middle. That, That is true, that is true. And I saw Gary Marshall directed it, so I had an understanding of what the movie would be like, because Gary Marshall, he directed a certain flavor of of, of film, you know, he, he did uh, Pretty Woman and The Princess Diaries, which if you really look at those films, they're the exact same film, except for changing some aesthetics, and... Overboard, he was a very uh, sentimental, soppy, feel-good, for-the-whole-demographic type of filmmaker. And that's no disrespect to the man, but it was his wheelhouse, primarily. So I saw that and said to myself, oh, and he, you know, and he made Happy Days. And I said to myself, well, I know what I'm going to be getting. It's a Gary Marshall movie. And I didn't know the plot. And so when the plot... Well, not even when the plot, when the opening scene happened, I lost my mind. I lost it when it said Melbourne, Australia, <laughs> yes, straight same. off the fucking bat. <laughs> That's where we are. I was like, what the fuck's this? Why is she, a, she's a French maid, this kid has an American accent, and he wants lamingtons. <laughs> he gets spanked so hard at the kitchen, he comes in his pants. And this is the setting of the, this is the, this is the opener. <laughs> Of the movie. <laughs> and I said, whoa, Gary, what is this? I said out loud, Gary, what is this? <laughs> like, he would respond. 
I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. And so I didn't get a synopsis. I just knew the actors and the director. And I was like, oh, it's a 90s film by Gary Marshall. It'll be a nice family romp. And boy, was I wrong. Oh, my God. He wasn't related to that, mate. No, no, hope not. Um, What did you think of the film? Um, I, I thought the film was quite messy. You mean sexy? Well, Ryan, you could say that the two go hand in hand, of course. <laughs> well, well, explain what you mean. Like, how is it messy? So, I think the big thing that sticks out in it is that this film has a narration in it from mm. Rosie O'Donnell mm. throughout the whole film. And yes. that's the major one that I noticed because it kind of summarized scenes that we should have been seeing and also it completely muted out the sound of scenes that were playing out in front of us mm-hmm. so we we had all these like really jarring moments where a conversation has been underway for you know like a good 20 seconds and all of a sudden rosie o'donnell comes in to explain what the conversation's about and where it's going um there are a bunch of scenes that were not shown because Rosie O'Donnell just explains like, oh, and then we followed this person here and then we did this thing and it led us to this place. And it just had this really strong air of like stuff was missing. And I I don't know Mm. if things were filmed and there were no good or if they ran out of time, but it really gave off this vibe. Okay. I didn't get the vibe that stuff was missing because the movie's too long for us fucking start. Yeah. It's almost two hours, isn't it? Almost two hours long. Fuck me. But I felt as if... It wasn't necessarily... I didn't feel that the stuff was missing. I felt that they they felt, like producers or Gary Marshall, whoever, that the audience wasn't going to get things, so they needed to do the dubbing over with the monologue and uh, maybe even the the pacing of the, the... The flow of the story didn't work because how it would have originally, so they felt like, ooh, if we had this narration from Rosie O'Donnell where she's talking about it in retrospect, it will add a new um, a new perspective on how the story's being told, which it did, not in a way that was satisfying, but I can see, like, well, maybe it just it didn't feel like it made a lot of sense the way they did originally, but... And I noticed straight straight away when Rosie O'Donnell had the scene in the police station, I was like, she looks different. And then I looked up the trivia and it said, well, you can notice that uh, when reshoots happen, because uh, Rosie O'Donnell um, has significantly lost weight during these reshoots. So I was like looking at scenes, noticing, oh, this scene, she's she's fatter. And this scene, she's a lot thinner. And it, that... that that, like, Henry Cavill's mustache in uh, Justice League is a good determination, like, a good factor to let you know when they redid something. Mm-hmm. Did you notice that? Um, I, probably not consciously, but probably I did, yeah. I had a Bartek moment where... Is that a good just, thing? No. Oh. To explain this, we did an episode on the Jack Black film um, Gulliver's Travels in which Bartek and our guest Mark unanimously agreed out of nowhere that Jack Black's haircut in a specific scene reminded them of a dwarf, uh, of a little person. Yeah. 
And I had a moment like that in this movie where Rosie O'Donnell was wearing her, like, shirt and trousers and her shirt sleeves rolled up in the uh, police scene, uh, police station scene at the beginning where she had lost weight in between the two scenes. And I said to Rachel, I don't know what it is, maybe because she's standing next to Dan Aykroyd, who's really tall, but she looks like a dwarf. I don't know why. (laughs) And... I had a Bartek moment where I, where I just saw something and went, oh, yeah, that, in that weird way. Or I didn't have an Amanda moment where one of, I guess, Amanda compared someone to a hamburger. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that. But I didn't think it was necessarily um, that the film was missing things. I think it just the film didn't know how to tell the story with the things they had. Well, yeah, I didn't necessarily think that it was missing things. It's just that the ideas that popped in my head when I was considering what this narration was doing gave it that impression and it just felt off to me. Mm. I didn't know how to feel about this movie. I loved it and hated it at the same time throughout. There was no moments where I was like, oh no, this scene genuinely I love or this scene I genuinely hate. There was just so many things going on tonally that I didn't understand what they were trying to go for. And that opener really sets the tone of what you're going to get. And then the movie isn't like that opening sequence, yet it is. Yeah, I'm in a similar mindset too, where it seems like people pretty much hated this film. I didn't quite hate it, but yeah, I can't really say I liked it much either. It's, it's, It's very odd. So just to explain the plot a bit, and I want to then go from explaining the plot a bit into how we felt when we realised, both of us, that this was going to be the movie. Um, The plot is like some weird pervert Australian guy with an American accent, yet he is Australian. It's very confusing. Don't think about it. As a small child um, developed uh, a kink for being a submissive sexually, and he's now an adult, and he's going away to an island retreat in which it's uh, for BDSM, or as they call it, like something ludicrous, like it just kept going on and on, like the police chief called it BDSM MMDDY or something. <laughs> and he has managed to take a photograph of a uh, of a criminal who's so elusive. He's the he's the most elusive criminal, and no one's ever taken a picture of him. So this criminal and his henchwoman try to hunt him down and go on the island and and get him and, and kill him. Meanwhile, two police officers uh, from the LAPD, in case you didn't know, uh, Dan Aykroyd and Rosie O'Donnell, are also on the case. They want to find this Elliot guy, so they go to the island undercover. Uh, so the, the hijinks ensues that our main character... I I don't want to use the phrase main character, with the uh, mm. main character of the Australian guy, Elliot... I do believe he yeah, is unaware. Was that yeah, Elliot Slade? How could I forget? He's unaware of the plot he's in. He's just casually living his best life while hijinks is going on. And you know, it's kind of like a Pink Panther situation where he's like blissfully unaware of the insanity around him, yet he's participating yeah. in it. It's not until the climax when a guy's aiming a gun at him that he realizes anything's up. Yeah, yeah. And that's the film. I was blown away 
uh, from the moment, like, after the spank scene, I was blown away when I saw what I thought was a white woman in brown face in an Indian turban and a mustache walk on screen. I'm like, what the fuck? And then she gets changed, and it's a man who is black. And I was like, wait a moment. I swear that that person before, it looked like they had paint on their face. Not like it's a... And I guess that might have just been me. I don't know if you noticed that, but it to me it looked like a, a like a person wearing brown makeup um, to look like they're an Indian person. But then it's revealed, no, that's a man who is a person of color, and she does have that skin tone. But I don't know. Maybe it was just the mustache and the turban, and I don't know. It just maybe, felt maybe, very odd. Maybe it was just the fact that she was pretending to be a man and. Like, you could kind of see through, like, oh, I don't think this man is quite what I think he is. Oh, that is definitely the case. But as soon as she appeared on screen, I just went, oh, no, it's a person in brown face. But I, I, maybe it was the lighting or something. I don't know. It was very off-putting. And I was thrown off. And then it threw me off that it was Aman, the, the Aman, David Bowie's wife and model and you know, actress and all of that. And then and then she's in the movie sneezing until it no longer happens anymore. I forgot all about the sneezing. Oh my God, they didn't go anywhere with that. It was a key plot point until it wasn't. You're right. I completely <laughs> forgot that. And our main character is, is talking to a weird sex therapist guy who's an actor that's in every Gary Marshall movie to the point in which they credit him at the credits and as always, this guy. Okay. I don't know if you noticed that in the credits at the beginning. I think there was something in the credits that threw me off. I'm like, that's a weird way to say it, but yeah, that might and- have been it. As always, Hector such and such. I'm forgetting his last name, but he he's in Gary Marshall movies, Pretty Woman, Princess Diaries, several of them. He's in this, and we're just being told like here's why our main character we chose an Australian actor, yet we're explaining why he has an American accent too. It was very. I, I just don't know what was happening, and then the movie's really haughty, and then it isn't. And I didn't know if the movie wanted me to be aroused or find things funny. What about mm. you? How did you feel once you saw the stuff start to unfold and reveal itself? Not just the plot, but like the the levels of nudity it was willing to show or its comedy and all of that. How did you feel with the movie revealing itself to you? Yeah, I think the scene where they revealed that like, oh, the film's going to be set on this S&M retreat island... I think it was the police chief guy telling the, the police officers mm. about it. Mm. Um, I remember that that was intriguing to me because this was a film I hadn't heard of and it was going to be set in a location that I haven't really seen depicted in, in, in cinema. But, like, it's a type of place that I know probably does exist in the world in various places. Um, so I had this thought in my head as that scene was playing out, like, oh... This we're gonna see this interesting location, and there's probably gonna be a bunch of like S and M themes that are gonna be explored. But this is a Hollywood released movie, so there's also the possibility that like it will be, Ten. I guess not 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 shown in the most genuine light, or maybe portrayed in a specific way. And I guess the film does try to have it both ways because you have you know Dan Aykroyd's the prudish one throughout the whole film being like this is crazy mm. this is sick um but then you have scenes where like people are like honestly discussing snm and it's yeah it's this really odd middle ground where 
most of the stuff we do see is kind of played for comedy. I feel like the only two scenes, the two main ones where it's it's shown to be a bit titillating is when um, the mistress sits on uh, our main character's back and also mm. in the, the spanking scene where he does resolve his arc of, you know, um, denying his kinks, which happens about halfway through the movie. What about the scene a little later where he wakes her up so he can just lick her out? That's a good point. Yeah, I was thinking that was the same <laughs> kind of scene because it was like a similar sequence. Same yeah. room right after. Yeah, right? And it's very... Well, the whole movie's trying to be titillating. I feel very odd about it because it's from the 90s, so things have changed and the conversation around the BDSM quality has you know, change for the better or for the worst. Uh, it's definitely been reshaped since Fifty Shades of Grey, that's for sure. Uh, and we will talk about that. But I was staggered at the movie because it feels like, it, like you said, it wants to have it both ways. It wants to be that safe Hollywood movie that has a bit of titillation in it, you know, but it doesn't want to go fully commit to showing you titties and BDSM. But then also it wants to be that. It wants to be... It wants to be a Gary Marshall movie and Showgirls. And what a weird marrying of the two things, huh? Mm. Like, I was shocked that we got full frontal female nudity on more than just the one shot, on, on like a couple of shots. And I was I was bewildered. I was like, Gary, what are you doing? Because it's not just that it's Gary Marshall. The film's tone... And the film's sentimentality that Gary Marshall brings to his films really does give you a tonal whiplash when the movie then wants to be sexy? It's it's peculiar, to say the least. Yeah, I, I guess... Yeah, it is, it is a bit peculiar, isn't it? <laughs> it's um, filled with amazingly odd choices down to the casting, as well as just the film's idea is bizarre and because it wants to be a comedy and it could have been but i don't know it just doesn't work mm, yeah it's yeah <laughs> yeah i feel like the own like the things i listed before that's the stuff with the the mistress character what's her name da- uh, dana delaney was the yeah Dela- yeah yeah something like that i yeah. know her from desperate housewives yeah yeah um yeah, I feel like all the stuff that was kind of titillating was with her. Um, but like you said, with the the whole safe thing, her arc then is all about like her romantic feelings getting in the way of her responsibilities of being like this dominatrix that's in charge of the whole retreat, which does yeah. make it fall into more typical Hollywood. And really, like after the scene with the spanking, the admitting your kink and the eating out of the, the pussy... Um, <laughs> of 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 the, the the pussy. Yes, this is my charming mumbling uh, gentleman uh, character. That's a movie um, title. The charming <laughs> mumbling gentleman, directed by the Two Plus Brothers. Yeah, played by Bartek, who is uh, a prude. Um, yeah, but after that scene, it's pretty much all focusing on the romance, and like she has the scenes where she's like jealous of him because he's gonna go with another girl. And just mm. being all, you know, worried about how her professional duties are probably going to be compromised. I think the movie struggles with perspective as well. Because who's our main character? Bartek? Yeah. 
Well, Ryan, when I watched the trailer and I specifically wanted to count how many shots um, uh, our Australian main character pro- mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. main character candidate is in, and I think I counted three, the first two mm. of which he was not prominent in the shots, he was among many people, and the third was the the shot of him where the narrator was expl- uh, listing out who the actors in the film were. Oh, cool, cool. So that was very interesting. <laughs> but, but who's the main character? I feel like the film really wants it to be him. Does it? Rosie O'Donnell's the one who narrates the movie and gets a a, a conclusion. Yeah, that's it's <laughs> and it's and performs odd. actions that propel the plot forward and the themes. Yeah, I guess could could we even describe both? Like last last episode, we talked about it was a film where there were like four B plots. Is this a film with two A minus plots or? But- I don't know. I propose to you again. Who's the main character in his story? Him or the mistress? Who's the one that has a journey? Who's the one that we actually empathize or care about in that story? It's not him, it's the mistress. Yeah, well like I said his his arc sort of gets resolved halfway through when he gets spanked and then we got like what like an hour left of romantic comedy film. But I'll ask you this. What was his arc? His arc was uh, that he, you know, he had these sexual awakening things that happened to him as a child, which, mm. uh, which, I guess he didn't fully understand, and it mm. has affected his relationship with women to the point that he was going to get married at one point, but his uh, bride left him, um, mm. and then he goes on this uh, retreat to help him come to terms with his feelings, um, and mm. he he tries to. Uh, fight against that by trying to be like this entertaining guy mm. uh, and through the mistress taking special interest in him and giving him this one-on-one session where his he's forced to come to terms with his feelings he is no longer uh, I guess conflicted and he's focusing on love right I agree 100% with that it falls apart in two ways. One, the you could argue is more important, is uh, they don't really delve into the setup. Like, they don't delve into the... You know, when you have an arc, the journey, the setup and the journey, they don't really delve in... Like, you mentioned it, you said it with the words, but and those aspects are in the movie, but when we say it, for those who haven't actually watched the movie, when you say it, it makes it sound like that's what the movie's about. But it's mm-hmm. not really focusing on that. That is what the movie will say out loud. But it's not as if you got into the headspace of that character. Even though they showed you why he has this kink and he's embarrassed and all these things that you mentioned. And the second thing is they resolve his arc so early in the movie that he has nothing to do for the rest of the movie. Yeah, I was realizing that as I was finishing off. But the mistress character... I got fully invested into where she was coming from, her her backstory. I'm not talking about how it was executed film-wise, but, but I understood who she was, what she was about, and what her struggles were, and they took the whole movie for her to reach her arc. And with the help of the other character who's going through an arc, Rosie O'Donnell, 
She helps, Rosie O'Donnell helps complete the mistress's arc by pushing her at the end to commit and to get over these fears. So the Australian guy, he may have been an audience avatar character, like the audience surrogate character, the guy who brings us into the story. But he, I don't know if he's what you would actually call, like he's making the inciting incident and all this happen, but is he actually the main character? Is he actually the main character? Because he really has nothing going on other than he has a nice butt he does that's true i guess he sort of like passes on the baton of main character when when he meets the mistress well yeah when when but when he meets her is when we the audience meet her too that's true yeah when when he starts getting closer to her well we were already setting up her stuff when we had the meeting with all the women before she even had a session with him already Mm -hmm. setting up her backstory so he didn't contribute to that. Rosie O'Donnell contributed to that by asking her questions. That's right. That is true. Yeah. So this guy just feels like they needed an excuse for this story to happen on the island so that they could tell this story about the mistress and to tell the story about Rosie O'Donnell. But again, it's about perspective. The film fails at um, attaining the perspective of the story. They should have told it from her perspective, the mistress's perspective. But they needed an excuse for this plot to happen and all that, so they had to, logically, you have to follow the guy onto the island. But you frame it at the beginning like he's going to be this big, important character, and it is framed in that way, but when you actually see the story unfold, he really has nothing. It's about the mistress, it's about Rosie O'Donnell. But he has nothing other than he has a nice butt, and he likes to get spanked on it. That is true. It was an issue of perspective, because uh, there were so many different types of movies in this movie. Do you agree? Yes, yes, that yes. Like, this movie could have worked if it decided on what it wanted to be. Like... There were so many times in which I said to Rachel out loud, and you would like this, there was that scene where he's on the island and they're taking him to the tents and he's like on the chain gang. Mm -hmm. You remember that? And they're running and they're chanting and all of that and you're seeing the island and it's got all this crazy stuff. And it reminded me of Nothing But Trouble when they're entering... Uh, the yeah, JP's territory house area. Yeah, right, right. And I said, if this was made, if the script was the exact same, but Dan Aykroyd was in charge, the movie would make <laughs> would would be infinitely better, or at least it would have an identity. It would have something. Yeah, I guess. At the, yeah, at that point, I guess the idea that that was keeping us going was that we were told what this island was and we were starting to like kind of see that unfold a little bit as they were you know running across the beach they're in the chain gang you see these women riding horses who are scantily dressed so yeah it's it's kind of the promise the what was promised to us was what was i guess interesting us there not so much what we were seeing yeah and dan Aykroyd, look don't get me wrong he has an issue with focus as well but he knows how to um he's an ideas guy and he's really good at bringing character to those ideas. He needs help focusing it down to something people can understand, hence nothing but trouble is is an unbridled uh, nightmare for a lot of people. But 
if he was in charge of this, this movie would be so much better. Or if someone like Cronenberg or or Verhoeven, because then you could take it from that um, you could take the sleazy erotic thriller edge to this movie, really embrace the kink element, like movies like Basic Instinct or Crash do. But this doesn't want to do that because it also wants to be for everyone. So yeah. If you don't want it to be like that, maybe you could have done it like your one of your favorite films, uh, Screwballs, right? Mm-hmm. A kinky sex comedy, a Porky's, a police academy, something like that. Really emphasis on that, you know, that frat boy sleazy humor. But again, it's Gary Marshall. They don't want to do it like that. They want it to be sentimental and... So the mistress story that I actually did enjoy feels really out of place because of how soppy and sentimental and how much it feels like it should be in a Gary Marshall movie. Yet it is a movie where she will rub her breasts all over his butt. Yes, while talking about her fetish. Unironically, as well. (laughs) While he's wearing a silly mask. It was insane. (laughs) I just couldn't get But did you... Do you like the movie? I guess in a sort of... I don't know if guilty pleasure is the right word. I'm I'm sort of kind of fond of it in a way. Why? I'm not really sure. Like like I said, this, this film does feel messy in some ways. Um, I guess... It's hard. It's, yeah, it's it's. No, I'm not hard. I'm just confused. No, you're hard. Uh, <laughs> I just, I don't think I like it. No, because it was too. It should have either been hornier or dumber, but it was neither of those enough. So it mm. falls into the boring category because there was lots of times I was bored. I was. Bored, and then it would throw me off with some random horniness, but then it would go back to Rosie O'Donnell and Dan Aykroyd uh, talking near a gong, and then his dick gets hard and makes a gong bang, and it was like, that stuff was boring and numbing to me. Mm. But then it would throw me off with full frontal nudity, spank scenes, but then it would go back to that, oh, now we're going to go to New Orleans, and buy ice creams and shit and I, I don't know I found yeah, it fast forward through that yeah it was just too dull for me I wish it was either more horny or more stupid and ill judged yeah. yeah go exaggerate expand on one element yeah what were the elements of the movie that did work for you if any I also enjoyed the mistress's uh, her arc it was it, it did feel very genuine, and I can appreciate that. And I think, mm. I think she did a very good job balancing out both aspects the the domination stuff, like when she's in the bath telling him to wash her to keep with the illusion. Um, mm. the, again, the scene where she is spanking him, there's there's a real sense of power there. Um, and even when she's like kind of mellowing out in the bed, like hugging him while she's half asleep, you know, there's tenderness mm. there. Um, so I think she did a great job. Um, it's a very well, embarrassing role. Like they do some stuff. Like you think about logistically, 
there's so many things, you know, nudity wise, but also dialogue, but also like how the how being as a woman was treated that you just go, that is so fucking embarrassing. But she carries it with such um, grace and authority and not authority because oh, she's a dominatrix, but the actress has, uh, I don't know, a warmth and confidence that overcomes that. Yeah, even even in her first scene where she's like branded the main the the main uh canned character candidate guy with the X on his back and like individuality is not a thing here. It doesn't feel like, you know, cold or robotic or antagonistic. It's just explaining like, uh, you know, on this retreat, it's part of the illusion as she said, like you have to uh conform with the rules in order to get the best experience out of it. She was the one who was trying in the movie. Hmm. No offense to any of the other actors, but she was trying. I could see her properly acting through this, like in a good way. I was I was um amazed by her performance because they do terrible things to her in this movie, like the this is how we do it Australian style scene, which we will talk about with the <laughs> stick of butter. Yeah. I just <laughs> that was really humiliating. I could imagine for her, but she carries off the scene and carries the movie on her shoulders, really. And she was the strength. What other aspects of the movie worked for you? Any comedy things? Um, I think the two things that got a laugh out of me were either unintentional or dumb. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't think I don't think any of the intentionally com- comedic stuff did work for me. Or what were the things that were things that made you laugh? They were both at the tail end of the film. The first one was in the climax scene where the main villain and the mistress were going for the gun. When they collided mm. and she was pushed through the glass, I was it, it threw me off like how strongly she was thrown through the glass and it almost felt like a slapstick moment, even though it was like a really intense scene. Like she just kept going, she was tangled in the curtain, she was about to fall off the balcony. Mm. I, I lost it at that. And then, and then the second thing, re- like, is taking tail end to the literal degree at the end of the credits when Iman just starts talking, and she mm. she gives us this like VJ Emmy style advice about not doing bad things. Well, yeah, I <sighs> did. I find anything funny in this comedy? Oh, do we count the opening in Melbourne? Well, that was funny. That was yeah, fucking okay. hilarious. <laughs> when he came and he's, she's like, I told you not to come in the kitchen. And then he comes. Very funny. Um, oh, it's it... a play on words. Yeah. yeah, did you notice it? I notice it now. Good. Well, see, the film's smarter than you gave it credit for. So you now have to spank yourself three times to, as a yeah, punishment. So it's not as fun as me doing it. I am trying to think. Is there anything that was funny in the movie? There were little things that were confusing that made me laugh. Like, okay, can you explain this? Rosie O'Donnell's at the police station, and the police chief is, I guess, a a child, because he has a giant jar of M&Ms on his desk. And mm-hmm. Rosie O'Donnell starts eating the M&Ms in the scene because she's Rosie O'Donnell, and she's clearly improvising in a lot of the film. Mm-hmm. And she's eating M&M's, right? She's eating them and eating them and eating them. And then well, she... she's... Yeah, the green ones. That's the line. She says, I've had three green ones and they've done nothing on me. Or like, uh, something. And I'm like, what does that mean? 
Okay, so there's a weird, uh, I don't know if you call it like a myth or weird idea that green M&Ms are meant to make you horny because the uh, green M&M when it's anthropomorphized not, is yeah, sexy. Is uh, like the green is the female one who's like sexualized. So there's a weird thing some people have where they're like, oh, eating a green M&M is like a sexy thing to do or something. Okay, I didn't know that. I thought she was like, you know, when you have green lollies or something they're like the least popular like green and yellow like jelly beans or yeah, like lime stuff yeah people don't like them or whatever and i was like oh is she referencing that but m&ms aren't like that so that yeah, threw they're... me off it made me laugh <laughs> because it was very out of nowhere um yeah, I, I, I guess if we do have the whole duality thing where she's the one who's open to sexuality and Dan Aykroyd's the prudish one, and in, that's an example of her, like, trying, but also it's a thing that not everyone would know. It made me laugh that she looked like a dwarf in one scene, as mm-hmm. I said. <laughs> I don't know why. It made Maybe me... just the size of clothing compared to someone who's a bit bigger. Yeah. that's what happened with Jack Black as well. I think it's also... People know, and I think you do too, um, Rosie O'Donnell was in a movie, a TV movie called um riding the bus with my sister in which she plays um um a mentally uh handicapped person um and it is the quintessential acting that uh, i think tropic thunder points to when they say don't go full retard because wasn't it i am sam oh probably that too but trust me you need to see her performance just clips of her in this movie and it is the example that you point to and go, don't, don't go full. She is insane. So whenever I see her, I think of that performance and it really impairs my judgment of her because all I see is her screaming in a, in a, you know, the, the, the mentally handicapped voice that she uses where she, she speaks like this and she's screaming, we need a toilet seat in aisle three. And stuff like that, and all I see is that when I see Rosie now, all I see is that performance. So I got laughs out of Rosie O'Donnell in this movie, which she's trying to be serious, and I just think of her in that. I just think of her in that. That's not this movie's. That's not a point for the movie, but it is something just to note down. I laughed about how she. I can't take her seriously anymore. Mm-hmm. Um. Anything funny? Uh, I like the idea that the bad guy ran out it was running out of accents to use near the end of the movie because he was mm-hmm. doing multiple accents but i didn't care about him yeah omar whatever his name is yeah i didn't care about him um yeah i, I forgot about him throughout the film even though they again yeah like they, they don't focus on the caper thing too much yeah they don't focus on the driving force of the movie which is the the danger Okay, you want to hear the biggest sin of the movie? A lust? No, 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 no. Okay. No. Gluttony, Dan Aykroyd. No, um, Dan Aykroyd, he wasn't funny in the movie. Ironically or not, he just wasn't funny in this movie where it's a comedy. And yeah, he's the true. comedy star, like he's the huge comedy guy in the movie. He wasn't funny. Did you find him funny? No, not really. I, I can't even really point it. I mean, I'm sure there was like objective, like, oh, this is meant to be funny things in the film, but I don't. Nothing even sticks to mind for that. When you heard, when you saw, oh, Dan Aykroyd's in this movie. Be honest, were you 
didn't that add a little bit of excitement? Yeah, that is true. Yeah, he I've, he's been funny in things I've seen, so I expected him to you know give me some giggles in this, and yeah, just didn't feel like there was anything really going there. But isn't that the point? Like, that's his character is there's nothing really happening there. And then at the end, he has a little arc of his own where now he's into kink. Yeah, I, I guess that was an attempt at comedy. I remember there was one scene where he was, like, lying in bed and, like, recording a log to himself about how it's like, oh, is it is it sexy to show nudity or tease it? And The questions of life, yeah. The questions of life, yeah, I don't I don't know. He, I mean, he was he's his his role in the film is even introduced as like, oh, he's a guy that no one's meant to talk to, and mm. I get, and throughout the film, that's kind of what happened. Like people were like, oh, don't talk to him. He talks to himself, makes observations, and yeah, at one point he blows the leaf blower up someone's skirt to have a peek, but that's not really acknowledged much. I didn't even remember it. Yeah, I mean, it was only like halfway through him doing that, I realised he was doing it. It could have been anyone in the role. That's the issue, is Dan Aykroyd is a talented guy, despite what you think of him. He brings something to each role that is unique. And in this, he's given nothing to do, so he delivers nothing. And that's the big sin of the movie, is if Dan Aykroyd's not at least being funny, at least he could be energetic, and at least, if not that, be weird. And he has none of those things in this. Yeah, he, he wasn't given much to do, and he was also, I guess, trying to be portrayed as the straight man in his duo with Rosie O'Donnell, because, like, mm. she's she's the one that's saying all these, like, dry, sardonic lines, mm. and it's making him uncomfortable, like, whenever she talks about her, her womanly uh, functions and things like that. And... That is nothing against Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd has played the straight person in many great films. Trading Places, for example. Eddie Murphy's the wacky over-the-top one, and he's the far more... But he's funny in the movie, and he brings energy, and he has something to do. And, and he's played the straight person in lots of things. Like, you know, in the Ghostbusters movie, he's dumb, sure, but he's kind of the most normal one out of the group, because Bill Murray's like a cynical arsehole, and he's the funny one, right? He's the one not taking anything seriously, and Egon's in his own world, and, you know, you got Rick Moranis is his own thing, and, uh, you know, Ernie Hudson doesn't come until halfway through the movie, but Dan Aykroyd's kind of the normal one out of them. Even though he's a bit dopey, he's kind of the straight man out of these cartoon characters, and even in stuff like that, or or even something like Spies Like Us, and so on and so forth. So it's not as if Dan Aykroyd is weak at playing the straight man. It's just, you have to give him something. And the movie gave him literally nothing to do, other than the most bare minimum of, oh, he's, he's got a big dick, so they call him Big Boy. That was it. Yeah, and, yeah, and even... Even the discovery of that by the Doctor, it didn't feel like that was something that would be spread around. It was just done for the sake of, oh, we'll give him something to be referred to by. It was for comedy. Oh, this scene's funny, because the joke is he has a big dick. But unfortunately, the scene also plays out, and this is where we'll, I think we should start talking about the sexual edge of the movie, is unfortunately, the scene also comedically plays out as... um. Sexual assault, I'm just going to say it. He doesn't want it. She forces it on him 
then ridicules him by saying he's a big boy. Like, she humiliates him and he's mortified. And then he, you know, plays it up like, yeah, I do have a big dick. But every other time it's mentioned, he's mortified. He's embarrassed. Hmm. And... Yeah, yeah. The fact that he's not there for any of the kinky stuff and the fact that it's being put on him anyway, even though, like I said earlier, he's not meant to be interacted with at all. Yeah. You're right. I didn't, I didn't consider that. She literally forces him to take his pants off and she uses the coercion of, well, I'm a doctor, so you need to do this. And then it's revealed, no, he didn't need to do this. She just really wanted to check out his junk and comments how big it is and, and how, and then she spreads it around as information for everyone to know. It's a sexual assault. It's as simple as that. And not saying you can't do that for comedic intent because everything is up for grabs in comedy, but it is about how you execute. It is about perspective, tone, all these things that we've been bringing up about the movie, and it fails in that scene. At least for me, I noticed it straight away. You, you, like you said, what we're talking about now is giving you some thought about it because the film doesn't want you to think about it. Yeah, like I said earlier, like in a lot of scenes, the film tries to give this like respectful portrayal of these activities and. You know, how it's all about consent, and they even mention that, like, the submissive honestly has a lot of power because, you know, they're the ones who determine when things are going too far. Mm. Um, but then this scene here, yeah, that kind of undermines it. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, talking about the sexual politics of this movie feels a bit weird because that's not what this movie wants to do, but also it does. It brings up all these things. And it has these sex experts playing themselves and and so on and so forth. And it wants to. It wants to be that. But it also doesn't because it's uncomfortable to talk about it and delve into it. And it doesn't know how to do it because it's Gary Marshall and he made Pretty Woman. The film where Julia Roberts is a prostitute, yet that doesn't really play into anything. Like, you know, it's, it's bizarre because... It also is one of those things where, and I know that this can be true to life, but it is very played out in movies and in media where, oh, there was an incident that happened to this person as a child, and that's why they have this kink, is a really Mm. played out thing. And it was played out back then, too, but it is one of those things. Do you ever notice that in media, where they have those kind of backstories for why people have a sexual desire or sexual preference or anything like that? And is it weird to you if you do notice it? No, because I've done psychology subjects and it kind of makes sense that, like, you know, formative years, something happens, it creates some neurons and it could awaken as, like, a sexual thing. Yeah, I'm not saying it's not... I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it, it is, like... The, the simplification of it that is weird, or what? It's just the writer's shorthand of, well, you know, he got spanked, so now that's his whole character is that now. Oh, yeah. Okay, so it is like a simplification thing of like, oh, I've explained it, it has roots in psychology, so that's it. Yeah, and also, in the terms of media, TV, books, all this kind of stuff, we've seen that exact use be turned into something negative, you know, especially in the past where it's like, and this is the reason why the character is gay, but if only they met the right woman, they could turn them. You know, we've seen that used in a tool mm. of discrimination in movies and media. And Yeah, and it's sometimes been also been used to justify why an antagonist is evil. Exactly. Exactly. And the movie 
doesn't handle it improperly. Like, the beginning is bizarre, and it's played for comedy, but it also doesn't really want to delve into it. Like, we said all this stuff about the main character and him overcoming his kinks and whatnot, but it doesn't explore that deeply. Mm. So, like the Dan Aykroyd scene, it's just kind of played for laughs. And that's fine, but again, what is this movie trying to go for? Or... Rachel and I were debating this, and I want to hear your perspective. Yep. The mistress character, uh, what was her name, Lisa? Lisa Everton, I think. Yeah. Everson. She tells us her journey from being a regular, you know, you know, normie sexually to uh, submissive to then a dominatrix. Mm-hmm. We were debating this when she was telling the story about her university college professor. Yeah. Was that a scene where she was talking about having been sexually um, abused or assaulted? The dark vibe of that scene kind of lends it to the idea, but I think I think it isn't. I think it was like it obviously plays out that way a bit because it's triggered by the guy just telling her to take off her clothes. So. Mm. I guess the way that the scene is set up feels kind of abusive, but yeah, I, I think as the scene goes on and, you know, it introduces the the um, the guy that owns the island or what, whoever he was, what was it, Martin? Um, yeah, the guy who's credited as, as always, this as guy. As always, as always, man. Um, it did feel kind of exploratory in nature and there were vibes of like consent going on there he he definitely his stuff definitely felt consensual and it felt open and honest but i was just talking about the university professor guy because Mm -hmm. the way it's framed i don't know we were debating it because it was a dark room too wasn't it yeah but he was he wasn't playing it like they didn't play him like he was this ominous creepy figure like they didn't use that see see they didn't use that simple shorthand of casting like a a guy with a creepy element. He was a handsome guy who's blonde and has these glasses that frame his face nicely. You know, like the visual shorthand of, oh, well, even though the scene, if you really think about it, is set up as a scene of, you know, definitely sexual abuse. It's okay because look at him. You know, it, that's shorthand yeah, they- used. Because yeah, they didn't. They didn't like hire me like three days without bathing. And there's it. not even that they have to hire someone unattractive. You can hire an attractive person, but it's about the energy and the way that they're framed. And that guy was framed in a way where, you know, it was sexy. Mm-hmm. Because we've seen attractive people in movies cross that line, and they frame them in a certain way, and. So it's not even that they needed to cast someone that looks like us or, or sleazy, creepy guy. They didn't need to cast someone like David Cross or something, right? They didn't need to cast a, a dweeb or a nerd. Like, they could still cast a handsome guy, but it's the way you frame it. Again, to refer to a movie, Legally Blonde has uh, el- uh, that kind of element in which one of the, the um, guys at the firm, you know, older silver fox kind of guy not the most attractive guy but he he holds himself in that way but the way the film frames him it's very obvious that he's a creep even Mm -hmm. if he wears the nice suits even if he has the nice hair and the teeth and all of that right but this scene 
we were debating because she's talking about it as it was a formative moment and she's talking about it from a perspective of if it wasn't for that I wouldn't be where I am today in a way that was both reflective inspiring and mournful it was all these things and I just didn't know if we were supposed to recognize that the scene is she hands in an assignment he critiques it and says that it was, you know, suggesting these sexual things in what was not a sexual assignment. And then he demands that she takes off her clothes so that he can sexually um, dominate her. That's what the scene yeah. is. And Yeah, with the, with the added context of, like, her assignment was about, like, sort of an S&M interpretation of a, of a literature. Yeah, but... The scene plays out like that. When you say it like like how I did, like when you just lay it out, it's very clear that that was um, he was taking advantage of his position and he was gross in the pig. But when the film plays out, I don't know how I'm supposed to see that scene. Am I supposed to feel bad for her? Like, is it saying that she was put on this path of being a dominatrix because she was sexually abused? Yeah, it is. It is food for thought. I'm I'm still kind of leaning no just because of the whole context behind why she's explaining it and what it leads to. But yeah, just I guess that's just another awkward element of the film where the character has to have an explanation for how they came from their, uh, to use your word, normal life to the kinky life. And that bridge that she crossed was executed in a really confusing way. It was crossed in a very, like you said, titillating way. Because that scene's played for titillation. Yeah. And when you think about what is actually happening, and you think about the real-world context of it, it's kind of gross and creepy. Yeah, it, it is. It, it, I mean, just to put it in the simplest terms, it's a teacher and student thing going on. Mm, mm. And, uh... Yeah, it was uh, odd. But then they handle her becoming a dominatrix thing with uh, the guy who's credited as always. Uh, much more maturely, there's a definite understanding of um, being consensual there. They understand who each other are. So that way, when now she's a dominatrix and she's worked her way up to that position, we don't feel guilty or sleazy or wrong about it. It's not as if she had to demean herself in a way she didn't want to to get to where she's at now. Because mm -hmm. they clearly showed us the dynamic, the boundaries, and where they were coming from as characters. But with the professor scene, they don't do that. And I'm left confused, and Rachel and I were debating about it for most of the movie, was, is she a victim of sexual abuse, and is the film saying, if that is the case, that is the reason for why she's sexually promiscuous? Because that is also something that's always played up in movies and shows, and, and you know, and, and of course there's going to be some grounding to truth to that, but you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Like, women be horny because they had an uncle that abused them, or a teacher, or something, and it made them really weirdly sexual. There's always that played out. So, the movie doesn't really want to give you a full, clear notion on if that's the case or not, but it's there if you want to see it, and I kind of do see it, and it kind of grosses me out. <laughs> hmm. Um, The film has a sexual edge, Bartek. It's kinky. It's handling all this BDSM stuff in ways that are both mature, immature, dated, progressive, all these things. 
But the film definitely wants to titillate you. It wants to um, arouse the audience. Did it succeed at any point doing that? Uh, For me, no. But like I said, the two scenes in particular where it was... um you know, in, in the titillating field, uh, where, when she sat on his back and when she was spanking him and mm. the follow-up bed scene, I could at least feel the vibes there. Like, there is potential here to titillate. Yeah. The rest of it, I feel, maybe if maybe if someone has never heard of S&M, it might, like, open some doors for them, but for the most part, I feel like it was all, like, kind of played for comedy. Like, Rosie O'Donnell's... Uh, citizen that was constantly at her back and the call. guy from big fat liar the guy from big fat liar and um i'll be home for christmas and and also the scene where rosie o'donnell's on a tour and she's like shown the the scene of like you know the secretary and the boss playing out mm. and th- that, that was obviously played in like more of a comedic fashion but like i guess you could also imagine like Oh yeah, some some real life scenes of that might play out because it is meant to be like this kind of cheesy porno kind of vibe of like oh he he submits yeah. very quickly and also there's the voyeurism aspect of the fact that there are a bunch of people watching the scene play out. So I guess there might be potential for all the other stuff that isn't the two things I mentioned, like Iman, but like Iman. Oh yeah, that one was a little bit more like in the intense field. Um, but for the most part, yeah, I just found it all like attempts at comedy and silliness that's completely fair and you know you're you, like you've said on the the pod even in this episode you're a bit more prudish than i am when it comes to sexual imagery depicted on in, in films and stuff it doesn't hit as hard for you as it may for for others or for myself but i agree the film has its like a moments or brushes uh, towards those like the pool scene like the spanking scene and all of that and those films were definitely in some way shape or form arousing i think i was thrown off because with the the pool scene which i think is probably the more arousing scene the one where she sits on his back it threw me because i was shocked that they showed full frontal nudity in the movie because it came in so late as well like it felt like it came in late for a movie where we've had strip clubs and orgies and all these things and so i was a bit i was more thrown off during the sequence than than what the film wanted me to be which was invested and aroused um Hmm. there were elements where the film wanted to be arousing, but um, and it's not necessarily that I'm kink shaming the movie. There were just some elements where I just went, "That's embarrassing," like rubbing butter on her tits and then pouring cinnamon on it and calling it Australian. Yeah. Okay, when that scene played out, I just went because the, the the scene is you know they're having breakfast or something. And he's like, no, no, you can't eat that croissant. I have to prepare it for you Australian style. And I'm like, okay. As an Australian, I was really curious of what this Australian style was. Yeah, same. And he grabbed out, like, um, butter. And I went, okay, butter, okay. And the thing is, he's going to not only do it on the croissant, but on her on her breast. And then eat off the breast while she's eating the croissant. 
And the idea of the scene, you know, from an erotic standpoint is very sound, it could work, it's the way it's executed, and they both play it genuinely. Like, that scene, I felt the genuine um, connection between the two of them, even with the goofiness that is the sexual act being depicted, I felt like they were genuinely connecting in that scene very nicely. She had a very big smile throughout it, yeah. There was a warmth there that was definitely present. Um, I, I... But... The Australian style, it was so curious because I'm like, okay, I'm an Australian, so what's going to be happening here? And yeah, he's pouring the, he's putting the butter on the breast and then he grabs out cinnamon. And I'm like, okay, because this is where my brain went, Bartzik. I went, oh, he's got stuff from the shops. Is this going to relate to the Lamingtons at the beginning of the movie? Is he going to have coconut or something? Mm -hmm. Do you see where my brain went? I was trying to make the movie, like, consistent and following through with itself yeah i'm not too big on like australian cuisine stuff but i was thinking he was gonna go for like vegemite or something like oh is he gonna pull out vegemite no no gross but, <laughs> i hate vegemite but you see yeah. what i'm saying right lamingtons are a very australian thing even, mm-hmm. and they are a thing and at the beginning they set up well he's from melbourne he's from australia and he wanted lamingtons but then he got spanked yeah I thought it would be cute if it was the same scene, but instead of cinnamon, he used, you know, ingredients that you would use for lamingtons, like a, like a coconut thing or whatever, but instead it was just cinnamon. I'm like, what the fuck's this? <laughs> yeah, is Yeah, I don't know. And that scene was very embarrassing because they are just, this, you know, she's a great actress, I can tell in this movie, but there they are just rubbing butter on her tits. And... <laughs> Not to kink shame, but it really wasn't that sexy. It was really awkward. And then it's awkward for us Australians because we're going, well, what's this Australian style? (laughs) And then it's not anything we do. (laughs) You'd think it would be, yeah, it was meant to be something of, well, I don't even, I wouldn't go that far. You'd think it was going to be something like, oh, the Australians would know where this is going as soon as he brings out the butter. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I did. I went, oh, it's going to to connect this back to the Lamingtons because I went, oh, butter's a part of baking. What does baking have to do with anything? (gasps) Lamingtons. (laughs) Just spread it, spread it just the tiniest bit on the croissant and then put some cinnamon on it. Oh, my God. I I mean, I'm going to try it now, obviously. I'm curious, too. I'm not the biggest butter fan, but I'll try it. Um, You're not a butter fan? I like butt, but not butter, you know? It's it's that kind of But you're a butter boy. Butter boy? Okay. (laughs) You called me unattractive earlier, by the way, Ryan. I haven't forgotten. I didn't say that. Yeah, but I I mentioned myself three days without bathing, and then you mentioned, yeah, well, you didn't have to cast an unattractive guy, and I thought, like, oh, okay. (laughs) I said people who look like us or an unattractive person. Oh, oh, that's good. I also threw David Cross in the mix. Are you going to defend him? (laughs) You mentioned David Cross? I did. I said David Cross. Oh, you did. You did, yeah. Say sorry to David Cross. (laughs) Soz. Two? Soz two, like the number two. DVD CRSS. Thank you. We'll tweet that out at him and he'll respond, I hope. <laughs> and we won't give context. But yeah, there's a sexual edge to the movie f- that's definitely there, but the there's a lot of gross things. Like, obviously, the antagonists treat the citizens or civilians or whatever very roughly and very, you know, in a gross, horrible way. And that makes sense because they're the antagonists and... Uh, you understand where that point of view is coming from. 
But, like I said, there's just some elements that are supposed to be handled better that just aren't, and from an arousal point of view, it wasn't particularly arousing, more confronting because it was this weird balancing act between a movie that feels like a typical Gary Marshall movie that then wants to be sleazy, and it didn't work, and it's unfortunate, but it's um there, like how it is. Um, any particular standout moments you want to bring up? Yeah, I don't know that that when the mistress was pushed out the window, that was my big standout moment. Just I lost it at that for some reason. Oh, I lost it at um the bathing scene. We talked about the bathing scene. The bathing scene where she's like bathe me, and she tells him like be in the illusion. There was a nice mm-hmm. moment in that scene where. You know, he starts to bathe her, and his hands are, you know, washing her breasts or whatever, and then it goes down into the suds, and the camera goes down, and it holds on these suds, and you go, ah, that's a great end to the scene. Because, you know, it's obviously implying that he's, you know, touching her down there. You get where I'm going Mm -hmm. with this? And then the scene said, no, 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 it's not over. He's going to shave her legs now. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And that was a lot of the movie was, okay, that was a nice end to the scene. Or what? It's not over? We have to make it nearly two hours long for some reason? Yeah. All it was missing was some Rosie O'Donnell narration. <sighs> yeah. I'm trying to think if there was any any other things that stood out to you or things you think we should mention. We've got Iman. What did you think about her? Uh, <laughs> I already had my giggle about you reminding me about her sneezing thing, which was incredibly prominent for like the first half hour of this two-hour film. Yeah, why did it happen? And then... Yeah, it's it's bizarre because the film either doesn't show her much or summarizes her activities through Rosie O'Donnell's narration, and then by the time she's back and doing something, you've already forgotten about the sneezing. Mm. Do you know who Aman is? Um, I I didn't know her name when I was watching it, but then when I read up about her afterwards, read Iman, I'm like, I've heard that name recently. Mm. And then I looked up, she was married to David Bowie, and I saw some things she was in, and I was like, oh, I think I remember where I've heard of her from, yeah. Mm. I like Iman, she's really funny, she's very talented, very attractive, and she's in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, which is one of my favourite movies, and she's very, very good in that movie, and um, very sexy and funny and talented and... uh, and married to David Bowie, and I was really thrilled that she was in this movie, and she was actually given some fun stuff to do. I like that she was the the killer, while the guy was, like, the, you know, weak, spineless one who was t- sending her out to do the dirty work. Usually it's yeah, the other way was, around. He was the brains, yeah. With women in these movies. It's usually the other way around, where she's the, go get him, and then the guy's, like, cracks his knuckles and stuff. Mm. She's, like... I told you, you got to kill him, or else I'm going to have to do it myself. Um, But it was nice. I enjoyed um, how much she was enjoying the island. I wish that was a bigger joke in the movie, was that she was just, like, in charge of all of the citizens. Like, she was becoming the top dominatrix, which was happening in the background, but I kind of wish they pushed that to the front a bit more. Yeah, I remember in the scene where she, like, was in the shower with two of them and answering the phone... Mm. It kind of it kind of threw me off because I was like oh she's she's actually enjoying it I I feel like that should have gotten more focus especially since this is already a film where we're struggling to pick a main character they could have easily gone for like an 
more ensemble focus on the characters. They did have little setups with her, like um, earlier, I think, or at some point. It's kind of hard to tell the timeline with things, but there was a point where uh, Dan Aykroyd was watching her to see if she would lead him to uh, Omar, and she was riding on the shoulders of one of them while whipping some others in front of her. So Mm -hmm. they were kind of showing that she was doing this, but again, if it was pushed up to the front of the story a bit more, it would have added a little bit more fun to the movie because I thought that was a nice comedic idea that they just didn't really exploit. Yeah, for me, it just kind of came across like, you know, she's there trying to blend in. So I guess I kind of dismissed it all as like, oh, she's just acting like she's enjoying it. But then, you know, as it goes on, there are scenes like the shower one. No one there was really watching her. So that did come across as a bit more genuine. And then, yeah, you just needed a bit more focus. And I enjoyed Amana. I thought she was very fun. And uh, But they just took her out, and it kind of felt like... I know that they said in narration or whatever, and you saw them take her out or whatever, but it kind of felt like she was the more prominent antagonist we cared about. Like, we saw her actually do things, and she interacted with our main hero in the beginning, and then she's just kind of taken out by Rosie O'Donnell. Like, I felt like if... I don't know. Genuinely, when when the climax scene was over at the at the the southern mansion mm. um and they were talking about how like oh everything is resolved i actually thought to myself like what about iman and then it took me like five seconds to remember oh yeah she was already arrested and taken to jail police station yeah, i felt like if they swapped it if they did they got omar at the 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 island and she had already gone to new orleans because she was the one that was the more prominent antagonist character, and she was the one that had already met our main character, and she was the one who had failed during the movie. So it mm-hmm. would have been nice to see her finally nearly succeed and then fail again, but I understand also why they did it the way they did it, but it leaves you going, oh, what about Aman? And then you go, oh, wait, that's right, they resolved her story, and it just wasn't satisfying. Mm, yeah, very messy. I think, too, before we conclude, I want to talk about Rosie O'Donnell. Um, what was wrong with her character? She had, like, um, like Rosie O'Donnell is obviously making fun of herself with her weight and how she looks and all that, because that's kind of her shtick, is, uh, you know, like a lot of female comedians who are overweight or have some kind of physical trait that's very noticeable there's lots of self-deprecating humor because that's the the trend but in terms of her character they make a big deal about how she's insecure and she doesn't want to have sex even though she's horny and she yet she understands about bdsm and she has intimacy issues but what did that serve yeah again similar to aman like i was thinking to myself oh it's sort of like being played up to blend in, but yeah, you're right, there, there is stuff that other people don't see. Yet at the end, when she gives the monologue, she's gone through a character arc. Like, she references that all these things that she's been shown through the movie, but thankfully now she's on a date with a CEO, and he sees her for who she truly is. It's like, yeah, but why were you so, I don't know, insecure? Like, what was that all about, and why did that need to be in this story? Because 
Dan Aykroyd's arc makes sense, right? Like, as a miniature arc of prudish guy becomes sexually enlightened. But she, by character design, she was already sexually enlightened. She was smart, determined, confident. Yet they would also make her bumbling, make jokes about her weight and how she's insecure. Yet, at the same time, it goes against every other aspect. So... What did that actually serve other than at the end she could tell us that everything's okay and tell us the message of the movie? Mm. Nothing. Yeah, nothing. Other than, and again, this may sound offensive, but if they had her be like how I described where they followed through on that, there would be no excuse for her not to feel confident in engaging into the BDSM quality of the island. And you can't have her do that because she's the uh, uh, authority figure character and you can't have her indulging in what is a, you know, sinful thing or a hush-hush thing, even though the movie is saying it's not that with her character. There would be no reason for her not to engage with it if she wasn't like that. Mm -hmm. And also, again, not to sound offensive, but it may, they wouldn't have the balls to let someone who looks like Rosie O'Donnell properly engage with that kind of sexual activity in a film. They'll have her dress up in it and make fun of her. All the guards don't work and whatnot and have the humor be, oh, isn't it funny that a fat lady's in a BDSM outfit in an action scene? But they wouldn't actually let her engage in the sexual acts or arousal that that kind of world inhabits. Yeah, which is funny when you consider the trivia that apparently the whole crime aspect was added in because test audiences didn't like the all the rest of the film yeah i'm ready to kind of wrap up on this but uh, i want to tell you i want to go through some of the trivia because i love the trivia this book it's based on it was written by anne rice do you know who anne rice is I've heard the name, but not too much about her. No. She's written a ton of stuff, but she's, I guess for us, primarily best known for uh, Interview with a Vampire. Mm-hmm. So it's weird that this movie is an adaptation of stuff that she's made, like of a book she's made. And I wonder, like, obviously I, I'm imagining that it's not faithful at all to the book. But um, it's weird that, you know, you had the interview with the vampire movie with Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt, and that's like a high-end prestigious movie that people revere and love and and have feelings for, and it's like an adaptation of Anne Rice, and then you have this, (laughs) an adaptation of another one of her works. It's very odd. Yeah, in the interview that I watched with some of the people that made the film, uh, yeah, Gary Marshall admitted that like he took the basic idea of the book, which is just basically the sex island, the male lead and the mistress, and then he added in the whole crime story and Rosie O'Donnell and Dan Aykroyd, Iman and Omar. Okay, I um really like the idea that originally the sexual the main character was going to be um Antonio Banderas, but he had mm-hmm. scheduling conflicts, so they just chose no one instead, like. Antonio Banderas is a name, maybe more so now than maybe in 1994, but it is very weird that they were going to originally cast someone, you know, who's not an Australian white guy. Yeah, internationally known. Um, I also really love that one of the trivia is uh, um, that uh, Dan Aykroyd's real-life wife was the ex-wife character at the end of the movie. That's cute. 
She's appeared mm-hmm. in a few of his movies before. I also love that for some reason it really wants you to know that this is one of the rare movies in which Dan Aykroyd has a mustache. Oh yeah, that was a trivia point. Yeah. Why? I guess it's a trivia point. And I have some interesting facts about Iman that I thought you would enjoy. Iman has a record for two things that's the same kind of thing, which is she's the first woman to have kissed Michael Jackson on film in one of his music videos, like locked lips and kissed him. Okay. And she's the last woman to have kissed William Shatner in, uh, in, in Star Trek, like in his appearances of Star Trek. Okay. Kiss, kiss records. She's got a kiss, kiss record. Isn't that bizarre and strange? Yeah. And she can, you know, she's still alive. She can keep making more kiss records. Okay. Um, and her name means faith. I'm pretty sure. Just in case you want to know what Iman means. Mm, She's, she's Somali, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, that's Exit to Eden. We, there's so much more that could be said, but it is a bizarre little movie. Would you recommend it? I, mm, I, I guess it would depend on the person. I, I, I'm kind of leaning yes, even though I don't think it's that great of a movie, but. Who would enjoy this? Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. Actually, that's a question. Why do you know why Brene recommended this film? I think she saw it and found it was so silly and absurd that we needed to cover it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's the point. I don't know who I'd recommend it to, but I I don't I don't hate it. But it's it doesn't really work in a lot of ways. I I don't know. Maybe maybe guilty pleasure is the word, but yeah. Yeah. This film has a lot of detractors. It also has a lot of supporters. Um, I don't recommend it. I think it falls short in a lot of ways. It's definitely dated in its approach to things. There are things to commend about its um, sensibilities about BDSM, but there's also some things in there that are a little uncomfortable, like we mentioned. And the way that they're framed, they don't want you to really think about it. But unfortunately... You do think, especially in times like this, because especially since Fifty Shades of Grey happened, the idea of how to portray and understand and talk about sex and BDSM and all of that has really come to the forefront because most sensible people know that that's not how it is mm-hmm. and that that's dangerous. Um, so that discussion in the pop culture sphere has definitely come to the forefront yeah, a lot more. I, yeah, I noticed that in in Exit to Eden, they they established early on that like, oh, you know, the the citizens who sleep in the same room as the masters, they have to sleep on the floor. And I was actually wondering to myself, like, oh, well, you know, I, some masters do like to cuddle with them. I, I feel like that would make a bit more sense. And then later on, they do have mm. a scene where the mistress and the main character candidate do cuddle in bed. So I thought, like, oh, okay, they are showing that. Yeah. So, but, but as you say, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey has kind of taken the, I guess, mainstream pop culture attention of BDSM, and as as much as I know about it, it is very much more in the line of abusive. Yes. Yeah. And this film definitely has some, uh, you could say, some abusive qualities like we've mentioned, but... 
and again, that colours this film differently, especially with Fifty Shades of Grey making people more aware of how you mishandle something. Because, be honest, uh, it wasn't as discussed or it wasn't as prominent. Fifty Shades of Grey was a huge phenomenon that has left a mark. So things in the past like this have a different... They have a different coat of paint on them now Mm. when you look at them from a modern perspective. Um... Yeah, I can see why Dan Aykroyd has stated that out of all of his films, this is the one he wished that he could forget that he made. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't even know how he could... I mean, there were incredible sights, I guess. Like, from his perspective, like, on set, it would have been wacky to see, like, all these weirdo people in their thongs and whatnot. But, oh, oh, that was something. The tagline to this movie is just the word thongs. (laughs) What? Yeah, look it up on IMDb. The tagline for the movie is thongs. Thongs. It's it's thongs. I, yeah. Good, good thing I have it in my recent history. It is. Just you go down and find the tagline. It says thongs okay, and nothing let's, else. Let's and I don't see. know why. Okay, where where do I look for tagline? Um, is it on the but, poster? No, when it's when you scroll down further. I have it on my tablet, so it kind of shows you oh, a different... Tagline. Um, You're right, thongs. Completely... Is it meant to be like tag or plot keyword? It's a tagline for the movie. No, plot thongs. keyword's right above it. No, you're right. Taglines. Thongs. Yeah. Because see they more. wear thongs in the movie, and Rosie O'Donnell likes seeing them I, in them. I clicked see more. It's showing three. It's thongs, topless, and to crack this case, these two cops will have to flash more than their badges. So the yeah, cops are the main case. characters. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Even though on the poster they look like the evil antagonists. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's the movie Exit to Eden. Bartek, recommendation is now in your court. You're recommending next week's episode. What is it? So, for next week's episode, I want to do the 1968 film Oliver. Oliver? Oliver. He wants some more, actually. It's got um, It's got your boy in it. Um, Oliver Reed, yeah? Yeah, From Oliver Tommy? As He's the child... No, is he the child catcher? Yeah, right? Uh, he's <laughs> Bill. He's like the abusive boyfriend. Oh, okay. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a while, so that is what we'll be doing. This... Is this... Uh, you have the thing on each odd-numbered or even-numbered one, you choose a foreign movie. Is this your not-foreign movie t- turn? Well, I can't it's, remember. it's American and not American. This one's English, so it's not American. Oh, tricky. Yes. Tricky. If you listen to our... um, What was the foreign movie we did last with you? The Grybowica. Um, you promised that in like the next one you were going to give us the French Afrikaans movie. I don't think I did. I'll play the tape. <laughs> I think I think I said maybe down the line I would. Look forward to two. Uh, sorry, six weeks from now when I pick Keita. I think you specifically said, "Oh well," in um, I think you said in six weeks' time. Ah, <laughs> uh, that was just me teasing because I knew that we'd be doing BDSM film. Oh, okay, fair enough. Uh, listening people. Thank you for tuning in, hearing us discuss Exit to Eden, a cinematic masterpiece. Unappreciated? Maybe. 
you can find us on the social medias of Facebook and Twitter. We post fun links and images and have further discussion and questions. On there, you can email us at spitandpolished at gmail.com, in which you can email us with your questions, concerns, uh, suggestions for movies to cover on the show, because this was a listening person suggestion, so you should suggest something, because we may not do it if you don't tell us that you want us to do it, because we may not have seen it, may not know about it, or may not even think to cover it. I mean, I wasn't going to ever mention Let's Do Oliver, but then Bartek came in. See? See? He's a part of it. You can be a part of it, too. I know movies. And so you can find all of that in the description of this episode. Uh, hit us up on the socials and uh, rate, review us on whatever podcast catcher platform of site allows it. Bartek, an arousing pleasure as always, podcasting with you. Maybe one day, when the pandemic's over, we can exit to Eden. Hmm. So you say it's arousing and then you say when the pandemic's over, we should do something together. I think I see where this is going. Mm-hmm. There were some couple things in the film, but it was mostly like middle-aged people, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And an old guy wanted to play golf. <laughs> I forgot about that as well. <laughs> <sighs> uh, this, maybe this film is great. <laughs>